This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 18th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, news intern Sofia Matinho joins us to discuss how to keep advertisers from invading our dreams. Next up, researcher Bina Desai discusses how to predict the economic impact of human displacement due to climate change. This is part of a big special issue we're running on strategic retreat. First up this week, we have news intern Sofia Moutinho. Her story is about a letter from 40 scientists warning of advertisers' efforts to influence people's dreams. Hi, Sofia. Hi. This letter is asking for regulation to prevent what the signatories call dream incubation advertising. Is this a real thing? Is there evidence that people's dreams can be manipulated? There are some evidence, but not a lot. Basically, researchers in the last decades have been trying to do so, what they call dream incubation, which is to guide people to dream about things that they want them to dream. And they have some success in the lab. But this is not something new, I must say. People have been trying to do that for millennia, like ancient Greeks tried to do that, to dream about specific gods by listening to prayers or thinking about something before going to bed. And what these researchers are trying to do is to do this in a controlled way in the lab. Can you walk us through an example of how this might work in a lab setting? We had some examples. There was this famous experiment called the Tetris study, and it was conducted by this Harvard professor, Robert Stickgold, in 2000. It, actually, it was published in Science, and he basically guided people to dream about the game. So he asked participants to play Tetris for a long time. He got them to the lab to sleep and it turns out that after playing so much, these participants start dreaming about the game and they actually start dreaming about solving the problem of the game while they were sleeping. Mm. So that's in a controlled laboratory environment. You also share some examples of how advertisers are trying this out, for example, with beer. This letter came out because of this advertising that Coors Beer 
put out during the Super Bowl, the last Super Bowl. They didn't have time to make advertising in the official channels. So they came up with this thing that they called Dream Incubation Study. They had help from a researcher from Harvard to basically design a guide for people to dream about the snowy mountains that you see in the beer's logo. Wow. And what about this other example with video games? Yeah, so talking to these researchers, they said they're concerned because some of them were contacted by companies before asking their help to do dream incubations for advertising or even for entertainment. So, for example, Xbox designed some protocol to get people to dream about the games they were playing. Okay, so those are advertisers trying to influence people's dreams. And maybe that could work. Maybe there's some evidence that you could influence what someone thinks about in their sleep. But what about this next step, this important step of that actually then influencing their behavior, getting people to buy things? Is there any evidence that that next leap can be made? That's where things get a little bit unclear. These researchers are worried based on what they know, but there is no evidence so far that people would really change their behavior or that the advertisement would work and make someone buy something, for example, simply because there are not studies trying to do that. But some scientists believe that this would work based on previous studies that show that you can really guide people's dreams. And other scientists say, no, this is not going to work. Also, because, for example, just like in hypnosis, people have to know that they are participating in, in the study or in the experiment. People have to consent for this type of dream incubation, dream induction to work. So some researchers, for example, are skeptical about this. They mention this old fad of learning foreign languages by listening to tapes while you sleep. You probably heard of that before. Yeah. So yeah, it turns out in the 1950s, they show that this rarely works. So they imagine that if companies would try to play sounds to induce people to dream about something, maybe it would not work as well. Yeah, it's not a very efficient thing to try to get people to do something new. There is a tiny bit of evidence that what happens during your dreams can influence your behavior. Yeah, there is. And the researchers mentioned this in their own letter, that there was this interesting recent study where researchers took smokers to their lab and got them to sleep in the lab. And while they were sleeping, they make smells of cigarettes with smells of uh, rotten eggs while they were sleeping. And after doing this for some time, when they woke up, they didn't remember anything, but they start smoking less, 30% less. Getting into the details of the letter, what exactly are they asking to happen when they wrote this? They're trying to bring awareness to the subject. And most people don't even know that you can incubate dreams at some degree. They worry that companies are trying to use this and they say, for example, that they don't want our dreams to become just another playground for corporate advisors. And moreover, they ask for regulation or at least to think about some kind of regulation. Mm -hmm. And there's no laws in place now that would prevent something like this from happening? The interpretation on the current laws is not black and white. The Federal Trade Commission Act, for example, prohibits deceptive advertising in any medium already. So some lawyers that I spoke with agree that this regulation should be enough. It should be extended to this new kind of advertising. The regulations you mentioned before, 
they apply to certain kinds of advertising? Would it also apply, for example, if someone tried to do this with a smart speaker while you're sleeping or your cell phone? That's tricky. There is not a consensus about if the regulation applies for this kind of intervention. So the researchers say that we have one step away from smart speakers trying to do that. And we have a regulation based on consumer consent, but most people don't really read the consumer agreements when they download or when they activate such devices. So it's possible theoretically that some company would put that on the small letters that no one reads. And by using it, you would be agreeing to receive this kind of advertising. But also the lawyers think that it's very improbable that this will ever happen because companies will just break the trust with their consumers. Is there anything that these companies are saying, you know, Amazon's Alexa or the smartphone makers about this approach? No, this is a pretty uh, recent issue. Most people don't even know that there are these researchers working on that. They are like a pretty small group of researchers doing this. And so far, no, Amazon hasn't said anything about that. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be part of this. Sofia Mutinho is a news intern for science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Bina Desai about calculating the cost of human displacement in the face of rising seas and desertification due to climate change. This week, we have a special issue on climate-induced relocation also called managed retreat, facilitated migration, climate-related displacement. Basically, what happens when the environment drives people out of their homes? How can we plan? Some of the topics covered include integrating science and governance, paths to coastal retreats, assessing mobility and populations, high-density population and displacement, and there's an editorial considering not only what science can do, but how this science is done and by whom. For the podcast, we're going to talk with Bina Desai about the importance of estimating the largely unmeasured cost of climate-related human displacement. Hi, Bina. Hi, Sarah. Good to be here. Your piece focuses on the cost of displacement. Why is this a misunderstood aspect or an unquantified aspect of climate-induced displacement? Thanks, Sarah, for going straight to the point of the piece that we contributed. Indeed, we're looking at the somewhat hidden cost and largely invisible cost of displacement. And this has several reasons, this uh, invisibility. First, data available on disaster displacement and climate-related displacement is scarce, uh, and there are huge data gaps when it comes to just the current scenarios and current situations. Second, our understanding of the risk of future displacement, so what is really in store for those most exposed to disasters and to the impacts of climate change, is very limited. And third, usually where we do have insights into the level of displacement today, but also into potential future displacement, no one is really attempting to cast that out and to look at the economic impact. Can you talk a bit about the magnitude of the problem? I know 2020 had some really high numbers for displacement. For 2020 alone, we recorded 
1.5 million new displacements. This is instances where people were forced to flee. So this can be the same person a few times. And it's important to note that of these more than 40 million, more than 30 million were in the context of disasters and not of conflict. Usually we think about conflict when we think about people fleeing. Right. And about almost half of those, for example, are related to flood uh, risk and to flood events. You know, when we talk about climate retreat, many people might think about living on a coastal area and flooding and their homes being washed away. Or There are a lot of other implications to climate change and for destabilizing people's housing. Can you talk about some of those other causes? So indeed, there are several ways in which displacement comes about in the context of disasters. The sudden onset, like floods you you mentioned right now, but also longer term processes and more slow onset processes and events, which are often the effect of climate change. So you can have an immediate impact through the loss of territory, of land uh, due to coastal erosion in the context of sea level rise or desertification. But each of these factors are often also compounded, even accelerated by human-made causes. But more than that, really, it's the vulnerability and often pre-existing vulnerability of people and of communities that is affected and impacted by climate change. So their livelihoods and their natural resource bases, essential services, you know, from ecosystems like water are being undermined and eroded. And that's really where we see most risk in the future the people who are vulnerable are the ones who are affected the most. And that vulnerability is what needs to be assessed, right? Indeed. And I think what's important to note is that so the sheer fact that people are located in hazard-prone regions is not a problem per se. It is one of the key problems. But the main problem is that as exposure increases just due to population growth and concentration of economic activity, say on coastlines or in delta regions, The vulnerability of a large percentage of the population in these regions is not reduced fast enough. So if you think about some high income countries like Japan and Europe that also experience disasters on a regular basis, like flooding, like in the case of Japan, earthquakes, etc., apart from the really the outliers, the mega events, the impacts are much lower compared to what they are on vulnerable populations or those uh, with low incomes in high income countries. Right. We often focus on, oh, well, there was a flood here. There was, you know, a disaster here. Is this an argument for thinking more about climate induced relocation on a global level? We have to have a global way of thinking when it comes to this problem and to this phenomenon. At the same time, we have to also understand while it's a global phenomenon, it has very different local and national and regional repercussions. So why we also look, therefore, and in our piece, don't present just the absolute numbers of displacements, future displacements. We also look at the relative risk. So what that means is really relative to the size of a country's population, relative to its income levels, GDP, etc., because the impact will be very different on a small island developing state than it will be on the USA. In a small country where 80% of the population is affected, even though the numbers may be much lower, the overall impact is much more devastating. And that is important to keep in mind. It seems like risk science has improved, that we understand more about how to predict what's going to happen or understand risk, but it's not being applied to displacement risk? Not yet. And this is where we see the real opportunity. There have been 
really impressive strides made over the past, say, 50 years or so, and particularly over the last two decades. It's still a young science and industry also around that science, around probabilistic risk modeling, and something the insurance industry has been using now, but often in a black box. So even in the so-called disaster risk reduction and risk management community, where now some of these modeling approaches are being used, only recently have they been opened up and been developed to actually benefit the public sector in a sense, in a wider sense, and communities. But so far, they've been focusing on economic losses, so the risk of damage to assets, to economic assets, to infrastructure, etc. And they've not been applied to really look at the impacts on populations and the associated costs, the immediate as well as the long-term costs. That's something also that needs to be understood here then, not just, well, people have to move, but the cost of those moves to those people, the places they live and, and the places that they go to. Indeed, that's why we have tried to, for the first time, put numbers to these kind of economic impacts. And for 2020 alone, we've estimated that more than 20.5 billion US dollars could be associated just to direct impacts of internal displacement. And now these costs are mainly related to conflict and disaster displacement, and more needs to be done to really understand the impacts and the costs associated with disaster and climate-related displacement only, because this is really where a lot of the contingency funds, the response funds, and public response budgets will have to be honed. Right. And you can use these numbers from your predictions about how much displacement will cost to basically make the case that people should be made less vulnerable. There should be planning for how to support these communities. This is really what we are trying to say here, that there is a good case to be made to invest in risk reduction and in prevention. And for this, it's important to understand that just looking at the past is not a good enough indication for what awaits us in the future. So I mentioned the data gaps that exist. We have relatively solid data only since 2008. So there's very little we can actually say in terms of overall trends when we look at just look at the past. But using the new approaches to risk modeling and using risk science, what we can start depicting is modeling out all those types of events that haven't happened yet in the context also of what we know and what we we learn and can project in terms of the development of the planet, the population, etc. And particularly with the impacts of climate change, it'll become more and more important to really cost that out. In your piece, you focus on shifting two really big things, our climate response and also more equal development. Can you talk a bit about how those are both important? I think our climate response has to always continue to focus on the one hand on mitigation. So really reducing carbon emissions to reduce the negative impacts of climate change and reduce climate change in the long term, because ultimately that's our best adaptation and risk reduction strategy. But at the same time, as we all know that the impacts are already being felt by a large number of people across the planet, what we must do is just combine now our efforts in supporting these populations with sensible and sustainable development. And very often that doesn't require new approaches. What we think is newly required is a stronger focus on risk-informed policymaking and planning. And that means really relying on solid risk science and a more solid data and evidence. So a renewed effort in, yes, data collection, but also in combining 
cutting edge tools with community based assessments is what we would like to see more investment in. As these costs are better understood, the cost of displacement due to climate change, how is that going to be accounted for across all these different economies, all these different governments? It's currently not being accounted for. It's on no one's balance sheets. And yet the cost is borne by IDPs, the internally displaced people and host communities themselves and local governments often and also national governments. But were they made more visible, then we could plan more effectively across both the humanitarian system as well as just the development budgets of countries. Then they wouldn't have to divert repeatedly really critical development investments into responding again and again. And overall, the humanitarian system would also be in the position to prioritize better its budget allocations. How do you calculate something like that? The cost of displacement for a person who's lost their home? We're in the very early days of doing this. So we only started two years ago. And our current estimates, what we focus on are the direct and immediate costs and losses associated with internal displacement and disaster displacement. And this is mainly based currently on publicly available quantitative data. We are also combining that with empirical research, with surveys we run in certain displacement situations and countries. But for the bigger numbers and the global data that we present here, we use impact metrics that are quantifiable based on publicly available data. And they represent or their cost for the key dimensions through which displacement affects the economy, health, education, housing, security, and livelihoods. And for each metric, we assess the average costs and losses per person for one year of displacement. Okay. Thanks so much, Bina. Thank you very much, Sarah, for having me. Bina Desai is the head of programs at the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center in Geneva, Switzerland. You can find a link to the piece we discussed and the rest of the package at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.